Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. folks welcome back to mike and maurice's mind escape we have episode number 179 today we're going to be talking about extraterrestrial life and a muamua with avi Loeb. avi is a professor author and physicist uh at harvard and uh we are very fortunate to have him on today you can check out his new book extraterrestrial i have the link down below uh for the amazon and uh, also, you can check out our stuff at uh, patreon.com slash Podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content and episodes. I believe we are going to do a short one with Avi at the end of this episode today. Uh, so you can check that out later. And uh, yeah, check us out on Patreon. Also, uh, if you have not already, go to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So, you know, if you like the discussion today and uh, you have different hypotheses or theories that might be a little outside the box, this is the perfect place to talk, discuss those. So again, head on over to indrasweb.org and set up a account. So without further ado, welcome on the show, Avi. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. It's our pleasure. Um, so I just read your book, really thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, our favorite kind of scientists on the show are visionary scientists, people that think outside the box, people that are willing to kind of uh, move the needle uh, instead of this slow crawl towards, you know, mediocrity that you see in science today. So um, why don't we start there a little bit? You know, your book is, uh, you know, about a muamua and this extraterrestrial object, but you also, it's almost like a critique on modern science in a way too. So why don't you discuss a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I really am uh, trying to... Um call attention to the current culture in, in science, which uh, doesn't have the emphasis on the right principles, as far as I can tell. Uh, and uh, traditionally, you know, physics was about uh, evidence and being guided by experiments because our imagination is sometimes limited and nature has uh, can educate us. Uh, so if we are wrong, we will see something that doesn't quite line up with what we expected. And if we are modest enough to admit uh, that we don't know everything, that we, our scientific knowledge is an island in an ocean of ignorance, then we can make progress. But as soon as you decide that, no, you don't really need the experimental verification, that uh, you can uh, make a monologue rather than a dialogue with nature, you are getting into dangerous territory because you can start believing things that do not exist. Sort of like being high on drugs, you know, or claiming that you are uh, you, you are wealthier than Elon Musk, you know, without going to the bank. Uh, but if you try to go to the bank, which is equivalent to doing an experiment, you might be proven wrong. And that's really putting a skin in the game is the key for doing science. And and a lot of scientists are afraid of putting skin in the game, making predictions that could be falsified because it could damage your reputation. It could. Uh, basically taint your image and your image is important for getting honors awards for uh, belonging to honor societies and 
a lot of people in academia after they get tenure and by the way the, the concept of tenure is all about giving you the freedom the job security so that you can innovate and take risks and make mistakes during the process of learning right uh, but instead what people and when i say most people i mean like 95 percent or even more uh, of, of of the community does is trying to boost uh, the image uh, of doing science without mistakes and and but not taking any risks and basically repeating things we already know and when when the data when the evidence comes along that doesn't quite line up with what you expect uh, it you know they, they just dismiss it and and move on and business as usual and that's exactly what happened with this object that we will discuss in a minute and I use it as an anchor to point out that the scientific community you know uh, has to change its culture. And the reason it's so obvious, you know, is because in in the case of searching for technological signatures, you know, it's not a speculative idea that we may not be alone, that we may not be the smartest kid on the block, because about half of the stars like the sun have a planet like the Earth. And if you repeat circumstances, you know, that you, you can have liquid water on the, on the surface of the planet and chemistry of life, then you, you might as well get similar outcomes. That's common sense. You know, every person on the street would agree with that. And um, however, the search for others that may have developed technologies is completely pushed out of the mainstream. It's not funded. While at the same time, the scientific community is investing a lot of funds in, in things that are much more speculative. For example, the nature of the dark matter. You know, most of the matter of the universe, we don't know what it is. And some people suggested maybe it's one type of particle or another type of particle. And there are experiments trying to find out. And so far, for decades, we invested hundreds of millions of dollars and all of them did not find the particle. OK, so that's legitimate. That's part of the mainstream. You know, it's part of the learning experience. You have ideas proven wrong. But when dealing with a search for alien civilizations, we are not allowed to search because you need to provide extraordinary evidence before the discussion will even start. So now, if you're not giving funds to this, if the funding for searching is a thousand times less than, than the funding given to the search for dark matter, and if young people are being bullied if they were to work on that, it's just like stepping on the grass and saying, look, the grass doesn't grow. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is wrong because the public cares a lot about this question. The public doesn't care if, if, if some solutions of string theory, uh, you know, are uh, impressive in anti deceiter space. String hypothesis, right? It's not string theory, it's string hypothesis. You can't test it, correct? Uh, yeah, exactly. You cannot even test it. Or if uh, the multiverse exists because we can't really test it. Or, you know, there are ideas that extra dimensions. And these are mainstream ideas where people give each other awards and some of the people claim that they carry the torch of physics forward what kind of a torch is it if we don't test it, if they don't put their a skin in the game, they don't make a prediction that can be uh, uh, proven wrong or right by an experiment? And the, the point is, not only they don't make such a prediction, but such a prediction will not be possible in the foreseeable future. E even if you think about it in, you know, in the next few decades, no. And then there are philosophers that say, oh, this is completely legitimate because if a bunch of physicists decides that something is right, that's enough. We don't need experiments. Physics is what physicists do. 
and you know a, a, a lecturer gave a talk at the, the black hole uh, initiative this center that i'm the director of he was a philosopher and he just claimed that and i said how can you say that you know <laughs> uh, physics is all about understanding nature and the fact that a bunch of people agree on something doesn't make it right you have to test it against experiments and you know galileo arrived at the notion that 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 we are not at the center of the world because the earth moves around the sun now that was contrary to what aristotle argued for a thousand years people accepted that that we are at the center of the world and but uh, galileo found that it's most likely that the earth moves around the sun and a lot of philosophers at the time did not find that appealing and they put him in house arrest they didn't look through his telescope but the thing about reality is it doesn't care whether we ignore it. You see, uh, reality exists. It's whatever it is. So the best you can accomplish by putting Galileo in house arrest and not looking through his telescope is to maintain your ignorance. Mm. If that's what you want as a scientist, to maintain our ignorance, okay, fine. You know, animals are not interested in scientific knowledge. That's okay. Um, but it seems to me like this, the culture in academia right now is different. It's the goal is to demonstrate that you are smart, that um, you are capable of playing in this sandbox that was defined completely artificially without any relation to nature. So you can decide about a mathematical construct that has no verification for experiments and just do uh, mathematical gymnastics and demonstrate that you are smart and that's good enough. If there is a community of people that are playing these games, they don't care about experimental verification. And that is dangerous because it's not really the profession. It's just like shoemakers deciding that they would start making cakes, baking cakes. Mm -hmm. They can do that, but then they shouldn't call themselves shoemakers. You know, that physicists cannot call themselves physicists, not, a, you know, not even physicists, but, but they actually claim that they carry the torch of physics forward, which is even worse than that because it's not even physics. That, so that my point is a physicist should make a vow, you know, a, a just like um, medical doctors make, uh, you know, the, uh, a physicist should say that at least one of the ideas that the physicist is working on will be tested experimentally in the laboratory or in space against data. And uh, right now, that is not a prerequisite for activities within the mainstream. And at the same time, you have those cultures. And at the same time, the search for uh, extraterrestrial civilizations is being bullied and ridiculed, whereas it actually follows common sense. The public is interested in that much more than in anti-deceiter space mm -hmm. of string theory. And, you know, the public funds science. So how is that possible that you have this very strange climate in academia, which I, you know, have a call for action in my book to, to change? You know, so I'm trying to, to make it, to bring science to a healthier position. And I believe that this is what the public wants, because that's why my book is immediately a bestseller. But of course, people in academia who feel threatened by this proposition, because they want to continue to uh, portray an image where they don't make mistakes. And one way not to make mistakes is not to put any skin in the game, mm -hmm. not to make predictions that can be falsified. And then they can glorify themselves. You know, I don't like that because that's not physics. And and we have a learning experience, right? So we should behave like kids. You know, we make mistakes. We don't worry so much about our ego. We just follow what the evidence tells us and learn something new about the world. 
why does it have to be about us? It has to be about a dialogue with nature. And, you know, it's really strange to see the response to my book from some members of the academic community, uh, which, um, you know, is not, you know, I follow what uh, basketball coaches say, keep your eyes on the ball, not mm -hmm. on the audience. And many of the responses keep the eyes of the people that write them on the audience rather than on the evidence that I'm discussing. So they will not criticize the scientific arguments that I'm making, but just make general statements and refer to each other. It's sort of like bullying, basically. Mm -hmm. Do you yeah. think that, uh, I, I know you have a history uh, or you have a background in philosophy. Do you think that that's what's lacking, though, even though some philosophers might back the you know, the quantum, you know, theorists and quantum physicists and stuff like that. Do you think, though, that the lack of the history of philosophy, lack of um, the philosophy of science, reading like Thomas Kuhn and that kind of stuff, do you think that's kind of what's missing? Because I see a lot of scientists on Twitter and social media speaking, you know, from positions of authority using fallacies left and right. Um, do you think that so that's do you think that's an issue? Like is philosophy being taught like philosophy of science or is that something that's being missed definitely i think uh, you need a broader view in order to see what's going on because if you you're focusing on a niche that is just technical and you drill in that niche you don't see the big picture and you might be misguided you know it's sort of like taking the wrong turn in the highway so then you can follow that wrong turn and you can be the expert in that wrong turn but it's the wrong turn mm. so in order not to make the wrong turn you need a bigger map that you know, shows you the possibilities. And, and that's what philosophy gives. It's a broader view. And also you need independence of mind. If you keep paying attention to everyone around you, you know, they will keep justifying what they are doing because otherwise it will reflect badly on them. And so you need to be independent, not care about what, you know, how many likes you have on Twitter. And since I don't have any footprint on social media, I don't care. And also I have a tenured appointment, you know, I, I have leadership positions. I don't really care what people say about me. I have the confidence that I can say what I think is right. Whereas younger people, you know, around me, I can see they're really frightened mm. because uh, this bullying is going on even now, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere. And one thing I notice is you see those people that write blogs or write popular science books. Mm -hmm. These are people that claim that they are scientists, they define themselves as scientists, but then you check on the archive and you find that they haven't published a scientific paper in more than a decade. Mm. So how can they call themselves scientists? I don't even care what they say because they're not practicing scientists, yet they post things as if they're scientists, make statements. They don't write paper, scientific papers like I do. You know, I have more than 800 papers and over the past year I wrote 50 class papers and some of which are on Oumuamua and its implications. These people are not playing a fair game. They are not really scientists. And then they comment on it and they get attention as if they were making statements that are substantiated. <laughs> but yeah, it uh, kills me. You know, it's really bad. I mean, I, I must say it's really bad because I have to make this fight. And uh, there is the social media arena and there is a lot of bullying going on. And at the same time, the culture as a whole is misguided. It's more centered on portraying an image rather than on the substance. You know, it's more about the audience rather than uh, the ball in the in the language of basketball. And and uh, it's frustrating, but I hope that I can change it. My real hope is my book is aimed at the younger generation. So I always 
pay attention to younger people because they don't carry a, a baggage of prejudice. They're not so attached to their ego. And my hope is that they would make the revolution. They would make the change. I, I, I lost uh, hope with the older people, you know. Yeah, we need more great science communicators like you. I mean, you have people, the people that are in the public eye, and I'm not trying to call anybody out, but like a Brian Cox who claims, oh, there's no way there could be extraterrestrial life because we know all the particles that are out there. There's no way consciousness is anything special. Like there's no, you know, some of these people are speaking from positions of authority that actually, like you said, I don't see any papers. I don't see any data. I just see speculation and, you know, theoretical, you know, like you call it mental gymnastics in a way. Um, I mean, the key is really to follow the evidence. And, you know, if you claim that this object, as we will discuss, is a natural object from a natural source, you need to come up with a specific scientific scenario where you explain all the anomalies associated with it. You can't just say that. And, you know, I paid special attention to those proposals that people made about it being a natural object. And I have uh, ruled them out as simple explanations. And by the way, all of them uh, invoke something that we have never seen before. So my point is simple. If it's something that we have never seen before, why not entertain the possibility that it's artificial? You know, that we have seen an object that is like a plastic bottle on the beach. Most of the time you see rocks that are naturally produced, and this one is the first one. What's so offensive in that statement? I mean, let's all embrace it and just get more evidence on in the future of objects as we stroll down the beach. Let's look for plastic bottles. I mean, that's all I'm saying, and, and yet it gets so much backlash, you see. And it really is strange because I think the public would be extremely interested in such a search, and... Moreover, you know, there will be much more funding for this from the public and and we can do it, you know, and we can. And if we find an answer to this question, it would have a huge impact on society. It will be the biggest scientific discovery that we ever made. So how can we ignore it? In my book, I call it Oumuamua's wager. Mm. You know, it's just like the wager of Blaise Pascal, a philosopher, a French philosopher that said, you know, either God exists or God doesn't exist. If God exists, it has huge implications. Therefore, we have to take seriously that possibility. So the same thing with Oumuamua. If it's a technological relic, we have to take that seriously and check. You know, we can't just dismiss it on a, on, on a tweet. You know, that makes no sense. Right. Why would we just have a prejudice that we are special and unique? You know, my daughters, when they were young, thought that they're special, unique, until they went to the kindergarten, they saw other kids. And obviously, they would prefer to stay at home because then, you know, they can keep the illusion. But um, if you want to get a sense of reality and not just feel in in fantasy land, you want to get evidence. Sure. Uh, so let's talk about Oumuamua now. Um, the thing that I found interesting is, you know, I've seen speculations about like, what if an, a near earth a near Earth object came close? How would we try and deal with it? And I know light sail has been thrown around as a possible um, solution to that. I don't know if it would work or not. I guess that's what I'm asking you. But how did, how would that relate to this? Uh, does it matter the the uh, the shape of the object, if it's flat, if it's, you know, cylinder, or does it, you know, would a ball be tougher to, to light sail? Like, how does that work? Yes, yeah, so the fundamental question about Oumuamua is whether it's a natural object or an artificial object. The other details are less important. 
But uh, from the way that it reflected sunlight as it was tumbling every eight hours, we can tell that um, you know the amount of light varied by a factor of 10 or more as it was tumbling. And uh, we can tell that projected on the sky, it was at least 10 times longer than it is wide, but that's just projected on the sky. And if you imagine a piece of paper projected on the sky, then, you know, as it's tumbling in the wind, uh, uh, it would look like an elongated object, but in fact, it's a piece of paper, flat. And trying to fit the amount of light that it reflected gave at the 90% confidence the conclusion that it's probably pancake-shaped mm. at the 90% confidence, not cigar-shaped the way it was depicted. Even though on the sky it looks elongated, but in, intrinsically it's, it's pancake-shaped. Right. And then it exhibited an extra push away from the sun, but it didn't have any gases around it that would propel it, you know, that would give it a push like a rocket. Um, so the only uh, possible explanation I could think of was that it reflects sunlight and getting pushed. And that was fully consistent with the fact that the force declined inversely with distance squared in a smooth fashion, just like you get in a sail that is pushed by light. And, um, and so that's why the light sail hypothesis came. Now, it doesn't need to be uh, designed as a light sail. You know, all it needs to be is a thin object, an object that has a thin layer of material. So, for example, in, in September 2020, just a few months ago, there was another object discovered near the Earth, not far, that um, uh, is pushed by sunlight and doesn't have a cometary tail. And eventually, the astronomers that discovered it with the same telescope, PANSTARS, on Hawaii, uh, they realized that this is a rocket booster from a 1966 launch uh, mm. called Lunar Lander Surveyor 2. And uh, this rocket booster, you know, is hollow and has a thin surface. And that's why it got this extra push. As long as you have a lot of area for its weight, you can push it with, with light. And uh, this demonstrates that we can tell the difference between a thin object, even if it's not designed to be a sail, that is being pushed by light and the rock. And to me, it illustrates that we can tell the difference between an artificial object and a natural object. And these are exactly the properties that Oumuamua shared with this object, that it was pushed uh, without a, a cometary tail. And, and uh, to me, you know, we know that we produced uh, this rocket booster, but um, Oumuamua you know, just came to us from outside the solar system. We don't know who produced it. But it's extremely interesting to find more of the same and figure out what, what they look like by, by sending a camera that will pass close to them and take a photograph. You know, I had 66,000 words in, in the book that I just published. And if we had a photograph, a picture, they say, is worth a thousand words. In my case, it would be worth 66,000 words. <laughs> if we had a picture, I wouldn't need to write the book. I would just put a poster with right. that picture and that would be it, you know. Yeah, you could uh, superpose it into the Nimitz video. <laughs> no, I mean, but UFOs are different because yeah. I'll tell you why. UFOs, unidentified flying objects, assume that someone cares about us and trying to spy about us and hovers around, you know, just around the Earth. Uh, that's a different proposition. And frankly, I don't think that we are special and interesting enough uh, to be spied upon. I think that, you know, we are very common probably. We're not... Very, we're not the smartest kid on the block, you know, and 
we are relatively early into our technological development, only a century or so. So nobody really is interested in, in, in visiting us, spying on us. You know, my wife, when I met her, had friends uh, that were waiting for Prince Charming on a white horse <laughs> to show up uh, and off make them an, a marriage proposal. OK, and that never happened. So why why do we think that we are sufficiently attractive for someone to come and and pay tribute to us. You know, well, like, I mean, I mean, I think well, we've had UFO people. We've actually had some of the people on those aircraft carriers on the show, um, mm-hmm. and they definitely saw something. There's definitely yeah, an experience yeah. there. So, I guess my question would be: a lot of talk around anti-gravity technology, maybe different countries, maybe some sort of advanced tech. If mm-hmm. if it was anti-gravity, let's just say, since you know, there's a lot of debate over that whole gravity to begin with, but let's just say it is some sort of anti-gravity technology. Could you set up an experiment to detect that in our um, air, you know, our, our different, uh, uh, you know, the sky or different, you know, part of our overhead? I mean, would you be able yeah, to detect that's, that? That's exactly, that's exactly what uh, came out from my discussion with uh, Joe Rogan in his podcast. Uh, I, I think that uh, obsessing on, uh, you know, declassified Pentagon papers is the wrong approach. I mean, these were based on uh, eyewitness testimonies that used old technologies um, and, uh, you know, decades old. And now we have much better cameras, much better recording devices. Let's just deploy them in the same sites, the same regions, and it won't be too expensive. And they record everything we see and just check if there is anything unusual going on. You know, that to me, that's the best path forward rather than arguing about what people saw decades ago. I don't, I don't really know if the reports are real or not. By the way, there is this biblical story about Abraham uh, that, uh, you know, in, in, in the Old Testament that they heard the voice of God asking him to sacrifice his only son, right, and Isaac. And uh, if Abraham had a cell phone with a voice memo up, he could have pressed it and recorded the voice of God. And then everyone would believe the story. But if it's being told, you have to decide, do you believe the story or not? Mm. Uh, you know, is it uh, just a metaphor that is used to convince us of something else? Uh, or is it what did it really happen? But if you have a recording device that you can analyze, you can figure out if this, this is a myth or, or a, real, a real story. And my point is, instead of arguing about eyewitness testimonies like Abraham's story, you know, we should uh, just deploy recording devices that are much better now than we used to have in the past mm-hmm. and check it out. You know, it's just the approach that kids have. You know, the adults tell them this and that, and the kids just don't pay attention. They don't care. They want to test it themselves. You know, right. they want to see it for real. You know, and I think we should adapt exactly. You know, I am trying to maintain my childhood curiosity, and I think kids have the right attitude. You know, just check it out yourself, figure it out. Because who, you know, other people report about it. I don't know if it's real or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of what would you do? Would you, you know, like the LIGO or uh, BICEP, you know, some of these experimental things trying to detect gravitational waves? Obviously, that's super far away. That's from the earliest uh, oh, no, cosmic no. microwave background. How would you detect some sort of gravity interference or disruption within our own airspace? As I guess well, was first, my... Well, first of all, you can deploy cameras. You know, now they're much better than we used to have decades ago. You just put them in strategic places and and monitor the sky. You know, just 
just that because people reported about things appearing and moving very fast you know so right. you should be able to see them with cameras and those and, videos are from our most forward looking infrared sensors on these uh f-18s and, and uh, oh but but it's f-18 you see that's the thing they, they were designed for something completely different right scientists can bring in instruments that are far better than what f-18 has f-18 is a whole apparatus you know it's a uh, you, you can put on a, on an f-18 you can uh, you, you have constraints you can't put things that are very heavy or so the point is forget about the f-18 because that was designed for a completely different purpose right let's just have cameras that are state-of-the-art you know they can be as heavy as you want place them on the ground or wherever and design the experiment such that it will be optimal for detecting things like that and, and let's check you know rather than rely on on these testimonies Hundred percent. No, that's a great way of looking at it. You know, stop worrying about the past and start looking forward in ways that we can actually collect data and uh, evidence on that. I'm I'm right there with exactly. you. Exactly. Um, so when you look at uh, back to my question about the light sail thing, have you thought about the near Earth objects and possible catastrophes and that stuff? And and do you think that the light sail to um, direct one of these objects away is, is even a possibility. Well, if you're using, for example, a, a laser beam to launch light sails, you know, at, at high speed, uh, you don't need a light sail to deflect the object. You can just shine the laser on the object and evaporate, you know, a piece of it so that it gets pushed away from Earth, you know, pushed to the side. It just needs to miss the Earth. If you know that it's coming straight into our view, then you want to just deflect it a little bit, nudge it. The earlier you catch it, the better. And you know, the dinosaurs 66 million years ago saw this giant rock as big as the island of Manhattan um, approaching them, getting bigger on the sky. The view must have been fantastic mm -hmm. until it hit the ground <laughs> and then the fun stopped. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And even though they had big bodies, uh, our brain, which is relatively small, is much more helpful for survival uh, under such a catastrophe because we can have astronomers that use telescopes that would monitor the sky and warn us about an incoming object that can harm us. And then we just need to deflect it. And one way is uh, using a laser. Another one, you can paint it such that, you know, it reflects sunlight differently from one side and gets nudged. Or you can... Uh, uh, shepherd it. You put a big object next to it that, that pulls it uh, gravitationally and just moves it away from the Earth. What you don't want is to explode it into many small pieces because that's what happened in the Gulf War with the Patriot missiles. You know, the Patriot missile, missiles were shot at uh, at incoming uh, missiles and uh, they broke them into a lot of pieces. And right. having a large number of pieces was more dangerous, actually, than having one piece. You know, mm. uh, you don't want to do that. Interesting. Um, so in terms of, you know, you talk in your book, how would you detect other ways of detecting extraterrestrial life? And one of these is by waste or um, something they've created that like a remnant that's left over. I think you use CFCs as uh, an example. Uh, hypothetically, we're, if we were to find something like that, um, would we try and engage or like, what do you think? Do, do we just observe or like, what would your advice be? Do we, you know, is that, is, should we just kind of hold back and see what happens or? Yeah, I think when you enter a room full of strangers, uh, you better stay quiet and listen. 
because you never know who is in the room and what the risks you might have. That would be the smart thing to do. Unfortunately, we've been broadcasting for, for a while, you know, more than a century radio waves. Mm-hmm. And if, any, if anyone with radio telescopes like we have exists within 100 light years, they know about us already. I mean, it may take them some time to respond, but we might hear back. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we've been searching for radio signals for a long time, 70 years or so, from space. And I'm not sure it's the right approach to find evidence uh, or, or the, the best approach, because it's just like trying to speak on the phone, you know, and you need the counterpart to be alive when you're speaking on the phone. Whereas if you're, look, if you're looking for a letter in the mail, uh, if the post service is very slow, the letter may arrive to you uh, after the sender is dead, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not around. Um, so you have a better chance of learning about the past. So if there were lots of dead civilizations that died by now, you know, because the uh, other stars uh, formed the billions of years before the sun, most stars formed before the sun. So there are likely to be many more dead civilizations than live civilizations. And uh, therefore, you can find all the space uh, probes that they sent out, all the space trash that they sent out accumulated uh, in space. And just like finding plastic bottles on the ocean that keep accumulating over time, you know, and um, our, our biggest chance is to find, you know, a, 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 some object that looks artificial. It's not functional anymore because it's a billions of years old. But I call that space archaeology because, you know, we can't have a conversation over the phone with the Mayan culture. Right. They're gone by now. But we can find the relics they left behind uh, through archaeological digs. And it's exactly equivalent. You can do an archaeological search for relics left behind in space. And it's possible that Oumuamua was really the very first artificial object that we found among all the rocks that we have seen before. So I think uh, we should search. Uh, any uh, for any interstellar object, any object that comes into the, the solar system from outside, just like searching for objects that enter your backyard from the street. And that saves us the need to travel far away because they, these objects made the travel already to mm-hmm. arrive to us and we can just look around. And I think it's an excellent way to find out what might be out there. And the fact that Oumuamua is very strange, weird, you know, we can't really figure out what, that already raises an interesting question of whether these things are quite abundant, you know, that when I find one ant in the kitchen, uh, I know that there must be many more, right. uh, because I, I only searched the small region, and uh, the same about Oumuamua, I'm sure there are many of those objects of the same level of weirdness that are already in the solar system, and we just need to keep looking, you know, and in a few years, we'll find another one and, and so forth. And, you know, there will be a telescope much better than uh, Pan Stars called the Vera Rubin Observatory that will become operational in uh, a few years. And and uh, it could detect uh, one every month. And then we she can... She discovered dark matter too, didn't she, Vera Rubin? Well, it will, uh, it will look for transients, you know, things that vary on the sky and... Uh, you can use them like supernova, exploding stars. You can use them to figure out, uh, you know, the, maybe the nature of dark matter by measuring the expansion of the universe and all kinds of other. But the point is it will survey the sky and find all these objects that 
uh, arrived into the solar system from outside, all these interstellar objects. And that's a, a completely new frontier, I think, a very exciting one of, of space archaeology that we can start now inspired by Oumuamua. So you don't necessarily think there's actual life living on Oumuamua, correct? No, no, because, uh, you know, most likely this trash spent uh, mil- billions of years, you know, in space. Right, right. Space is a very harsh environment where if you put life on the surface of an object, uh, you know, there are cosmic rays bombarding it all the time and they could easily kill it in a time scale, on a time scale that is much shorter than billions of years. And so it's difficult to imagine, unless, of course, they are hidden deep inside and protected from the cosmic rays. But um, I would guess it's just a piece of equipment which probably is junk, you know, like doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. But we can... Definitely, by taking a photograph, close-up photo, we can tell the difference between a rock and something else. And, you know, we do, even if we don't understand what this something else was, we can see that it's something else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email Elon Musk right now, <laughs> see if he can get, a, get some photos out there. Um... What we need is a lot of cameras, you know, within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Just distribute, And it's not very expensive. You just deploy cameras. And uh, when the next one, the next object that looks as weird as this one comes along, one of the cameras may be close to its path. And then you take a photograph. Do you think that there's maybe not as many of them as of these objects because of the orc orc clouds? Like, do you think that maybe since this came from outside that it has to pass through this, you know, gauntlet of other things or something along those lines? No, most most space is empty. There, There is no risk of it hitting something. But um, the, the point is that, um, you know, if, if you feel that this one is special, that we were lucky to find it, then you violate the so-called Copernican principle. That's, that's a principle based of, on, on the fact that Copernicus uh, discovered that the Earth is not at the center of the world, you know, at the center of the universe. We are not in a privileged place. Mm-hmm. And you can generalize it not being in a privileged time, you know. So if you look at the sky for a few years and you find one object, it means that if you look for another three years, you'll find another one. You know, there is no reason why you were privileged at that time. You know, that will be a small probability. And um, so that's what I think is most natural. It's just like finding an ant in the kitchen. You look across a small portion of the kitchen, you find an ant, then you know should be many more because you just looked at a small portion, you know. And uh, So do you think yeah. since that this is the one that we found that we latched on to that we weren't really looking for these before or we weren't paying attention oh, yeah. or so okay. We 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 didn't have the capacity to look for it. So the Pan-STARRS uh, telescope was really the first one that was sensitive to objects of this size, a few hundred feet uh within the orbit of the earth around the sun, you know. Uh, it was the first one that was sensitive and was surveying the sky routinely. It was looking for near-Earth ob- objects that are f- uh, coming from inside the, o- the solar system, like or cloud objects or asteroids. Or, and, um, and it was just the first telescope that was doing it and found this object within a few years. Mm-hmm. So my point is simple. You know, continue to look for a few more years, you'll find another one. Have you already started keeping your eye out for another one? Is this something that's been ongoing? Well, it's automatic. You see, the, the telescope is serving the sky. And the astronomers will simply report whenever a, another interstellar object is found. There was a second one that was discovered by a Russian amateur astronomer 
it's uh, it's called Borisov because his last name was Borisov. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this one looked exactly like a comet, no different than the comets that we have seen before. And uh, people came to me and said, look, this one is natural, right? And I said, yes. And they said, okay, doesn't it convince you that the Oumuamua is also natural? Uh, to which I replied, you know, if you find a plastic bottle on the beach and after that you find a lot of rocks, does it change the nature of the plastic bottle to being a rock? Or another way to put it, you know, when I met my wife uh, on the first date, I thought that she's special and, and unique. And, and then I met a lot of people after that. And I still think that she's special. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the second object has nothing to do with the first object. Yeah, that's interesting. So I know we, we were talking a little bit about UFOs earlier, but somebody was asking, you know, do you think at any point in, in the past something's visited us, even if it was just to observe like how we observe ants or we send people to the, you know, the, the jungle or the rainforest to look at the new bug species, that kind of a thing? Yeah, one thing you, you need to keep in mind is that um, it takes an object like Oumuamua more than 10,000 years to traverse the Oort cloud, to traverse the entire solar system. And think about us 10,000 years back. We were not that interesting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the point is, it's hard for me to believe, first, that we are sufficiently interesting for a visit, and second, that someone would have the foresight to send a probe if it moves at these speeds, you know. Um, so I would think, you know, probably it's just something not intended and entered the solar system, and there are plenty of those things, and we just need to look, and we'll find another one, and then we can examine it, take a photograph, or maybe even land on it and learn more about it. But uh, I don't think that it's likely that anyone was planning to spy on us. You know, that's my that's my tendency. What about like an AI thing, like or like a say? All of this is driven by modesty. I mean, right. uh, I think guiding principle that you get from from doing astronomy is that. You know, we should be modest. We are such a small component in the big scheme of things. You know, the universe, our lifetime is is really short compared to the age of the universe. You know, the, the technological civilization that we have, all the technologies we have, were for a century, you know, so. And it's one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe. You know, it's really tiny. Um, so we tend to think about us as prominent and important, but we are really not very significant, you know, and uh, I have a hard time believing that we, that someone is really watching us and caring about us. You know, we're probably just alone, you know, because because there are many others that are similar and nobody cares especially about us. You know, it's just like having ants on the sidewalk. Uh, when you walk down the street, you don't pay attention to every ant, you know, it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about like the von Neumann probe idea or like AI technology? Like what if a civilization got so advanced that they could, you know, send all these pro self-replicating probes out? Like, you know, is that something that we could look forward to this technology and these techno uh, technological signatures in the universe that maybe have been re replicated that maybe even the civilization that created them is no longer around? Yeah. So the idea of a self-replicating machine is interesting because what it means is that whoever you know whichever machines replicate themselves uh would be the most abundant you know they would be the most numerous it's sort of like a darwinian uh, selection you know that those that replicate are the most common you know mm -hmm. that 
you know, if if you are if you decide to be a nun and and you don't have any any kids, you know, and uh, then you are not likely then you will not reproduce and you will not uh, you know continue to be part of society. And uh, but if you have a, a, a machine that replicates a lot, then that would be most likely for us to be uh, abundant and, and, and we will find it. And yeah, so we don't know, right? So we don't know whether there are for new, new machines, but the idea itself is interesting because we could search for those things that not only exist, but also produce copies of themselves. And, and then they become very, so how can we find out? Well, suppose we see two plastic bottles that look <laughs> identical, you know, like right. they look the same. And then we see a third one that looks the same. We know that there must be a production line somewhere, you know, that makes similar things. Yeah, you talk about also spreading out and kind of not keeping all the eggs in one basket. You talk about, you know, let's get to the moon, let's get to Mars, let's get spread out a little bit. Um, is there any advantage, though, from like a discovery standpoint of, let's say, setting up an observatory on the moon or setting up an observatory on Mars that we like an, an advantage that we don't have here because of maybe our atmosphere or different things? Yeah, definitely. The moon is just like a museum because it doesn't have an atmosphere. So on Earth, uh, objects that are smaller than the size of a person, they they burn up in the atmosphere. They are called meteors. Mm -hmm. We see them burn up and then nothing is left. Uh, only if they are much bigger than the size of a person, they last, you know, and, and, and some core of them reaches the ground. But on the moon, there is no atmosphere. So all the objects pile up on the surface of the moon. And also it doesn't have any geological activity. There is no turnover of whatever is on the surface. It's not being brought uh, and mixed with material inside. On Earth, you know, anything that landed on the surface of the Earth more than 100 million years ago is mixed now in, in the interior because of geological activity. And so the moon is really interesting. It's just like an archeological site where all the objects that landed on the moon uh, are, are, can be found on its surface. And, and uh, potentially some of these may be pieces of equipment, you know, the uh, interstellar probes that they just hit the moon. It was like a fishing net collecting things, you know. And uh, it would be really amazing if we were to search the surface of the moon. And obviously, most of the time you find rocks, mm -hmm. but suddenly you see something that looks artificial, you know, that would be, and, and we didn't launch it, you know, it looks like we did, we are not responsible for this thing and and it's uh, it's on the surface you know it's like like an archaeological dig uh, you yeah. you find things that you may have not expected so that would be really interesting uh, that would be an opportunity for us to put our hands on a, a, an artificial object that came from far away do you see that as possibly being a future discipline um like um astro uh astroarchaeology you know in, in terms of um getting out there and actually doing these archaeological digs on these other planets or taking samples and i guess that's kind of what they do with rovers but they don't ever actually find anything that interesting right so right um, but there is another way to do it uh, you can go on the surface but you can also hover above the surface and take uh, photographs and then analyze them hmm. uh that that would uncover whatever is on the surface if you want to go deeper than the in the surface then you need to dig and uh, you, you know um, that that's also a possibility at first we might just go around the surface and see if there's anything unusual 
And we can do the same thing on Mars, of course. Um, that that that's also possible. Do you think that when you look at the way science is progressing, that um, obviously there's some you know setbacks and there's this like slow crawl that we talked about earlier. Um, but do you think that we need to push the envelope in other ways too, not just searching for extraterrestrial life, taking chances in other aspects of your discipline too, and like um, like the dark matter thing, the uh, gravitational waves, gravitation, you know, the whole gravity thing. Like, is there is there people doing what you're doing in those other disciplines, or do we need more of that? We definitely need the, more of that, and I think the first uh, thing that should be emphasized is that whoever puts skin in the game, whoever takes a risk and makes predictions that can be falsified, should get rewarded, okay? Rather than people that show that they are smart based on intellectual gymnastics, which is pretty much the culture right now. Hmm. And the measure of success should be in making, uh, putting forward ideas that can be tested that are appealing, you know? And that should be the criterion by which we make progress because we learn from nature rather than uh, assuming that we know things in advance, you know, prejudice and and trying to demonstrate that we are smart. It's not about us. It's a dialogue with nature and it's about figuring out just like kids learn about the world. You know, they take risks. They sometimes get injured because they make the wrong uh, move, you know, and but it's OK to get injured. You know, if your image uh, is stained a little bit because you took some risk and made a mistake, you know, it's not, it's not if you don't have bruises, it means you're not taking any risks and you are boring. That's my main point. You are boring. If you repeat things that we already know, I mean, you can get into honorary societies and pretend that you are very respectable, wear a tie and everyone claps their hands. But you are boring. And the only way for you to be interesting is by taking some risks and going in directions that will, you know, expose new knowledge for us. And that's really what is the burning front of knowledge, trying to you know make make progress and and we can make mistakes as part of the game you know that let's let's innovate let's let's take some risks and i think it's missing right now and just to give you an example you mentioned gravitational waves so the proposal to build ligo when i was a postdoc just finished my phd and i came to princeton it was ridiculed and people said you know that will never work uh, people in the astronomy community said it will never work then in 2013, I gave a lecture at the winter school about gravitational wave astrophysics. And 10 minutes into my talk, a relatively young faculty member stood up and said, why are you wasting the time of these students on a subject that will never be important during their career? And um, he was very confident of himself, you know, like an alpha male standing up, telling me what to do. I was much more senior than he is. Hmm. Um, and uh, then two years later, LIGO detected the first gravitational wave signal for which the Nobel Prize was awarded. And uh, you just think about it, the same students that I lectured to were still doing their PhD when the LIGO detection took place. And this guy was telling me that I'm wasting their time. It was during their PhD that the first gravity, and then the Nobel Prize was given to that. And that shows you how conservative you know, and this guy was younger than I am, and he was trying to establish his uh, reputation by, by basically bullying or saying something bad about a field that hasn't emerged yet, okay? The same was true on exoplanets, you know, the, the discovery of planets around other stars. Uh, in in uh, 
1952, um, there was a proposal in a paper uh, that uh, Otto Struve, an astronomer, made saying that, you know, if you have a Jupiter-like planet uh, close to a star, it will move the star back and forth in a measurable way. Or it could pass in front of the star, you will see the diminution of light from the star. And that proposal did not receive any support. Time allocation committees on telescopes said, you know, we don't want to waste telescope time in looking for such systems because we know that Jupiter is far away from the sun and we understand why. And therefore, there shouldn't be any Jupiters close to their stars. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be any. And why, why should we waste our time looking for them? And then in 1995, someone dared to look and found you know, and these people got the Nobel Prize just a few years ago, okay? And they found the first Jupiter star system, and that opened a whole new field of exoplanets. Now, you may argue, okay, no harm was done, you know, so four decades, nothing was found, but then eventually science found these things. The point is, it took four decades, and if we were to find it earlier, you know, it would have improved the efficiency of science. By now, we would make more progress. But beyond that, you know, this is a, a baby that managed to get born, there are many unborn babies, you know, basically that were suffocated or suppressed uh, completely, and we didn't get them to fruition. And they, uh, you know, and science suffers from that. And so my point is, if you look at the commercial uh, sector, you know, you look at companies, they have a, a team of people that work on risky propositions, you know, and they realize that even though they're up for profits, you know, that if you take risks, you can find something completely new that nobody else has, and they can make a profit of it that will compensate for all the losses they have from failed ideas. And they recognize that. So why would the academic community be more conservative? It's supposed to be more open-minded. You know, it's not up for profit. It's a non-profit. You know, universities right. are non-profit organizations by definition. They get tax deductions. They are non-profit. If they are non-profit, they should not have the bottom line on their portfolio, they should uh, encourage people to uh, innovate, right? And when I come and say, Oumuamua looks strange, we should consider the possibility of this technological signature. What do I get in return? People bullying it, ridiculing it, and not even willing to discuss it as a serious possibility. And I ask you, how is that possible? It supposed academia is supposed to be well embracing this and saying, okay, you made an interesting proposal. The public seems to be extremely interested. You made an interesting proposal. Let's collect more evidence and test it out. Well, that's where what? a lot of the uh, the the debate and the animosity, I think, when you see people that don't trust certain aspects of science or whatever, it's because yes. I don't think they're investigating the things that people want them to investigate exactly. or that the public wants exactly. out of it. And by the, and by the way. There is this notion of science as an occupation of the elite. I think it's a self-inflicted wound in the sense that scientists use science sometimes to elevate themselves, to, to put themselves on a pedestal and only inform the public when the results are conclusive <laughs> and not to involve, engage the public when there is, a, and then work on things that are like asking how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin that right. the public doesn't care about. You know, and I think that's a big mistake because science is of interest to the public and if only the scientists would be willing to address the topics that are of interest to the public and the public fund science it should be a, you know the two sides should be engaged together i think science is a way of life it's not a status symbol you're not supposed to think oh i'm smart therefore you know i, I will not degrade my profession by speaking to the people you know that makes no sense right and um, 
you know, when, when I meet uh, people that help me with all kinds of household, you know, a plumber that comes to, to fix something at home, I speak with them about science just like I speak with my colleagues. And sometimes I enjoy it even more because, you know, people are more open-minded. Exciting and, and passionate, yeah. Yeah. So I think science should be uh, accessible to everyone. It should address the questions that are of interest to the public. And it should be explained to the public. So if we don't have enough evidence, we should tell the public, what's the problem? You know, why hide it from the public and only come out and lecture as if the public is students in a classroom and lecture what the results are when we are 100% sure. And and by the way, many times when scientists are 100% sure and lecture to the public, then they retract and say, oh, we made a mistake, actually, and it's not what we said. And that happens a lot in, in press conference. So that is a completely twisted way of presenting science. Science is a, a work in progress. It, it, it should never be pretended to be the ultimate truth that is given as a lecture in a class. You know, we should let the public know, okay, we didn't have enough evidence. There are several possibilities. We are now exploring them. And then the public will believe you when you say, okay, we, exp- we got more evidence and now we are sure. You know, mm. the public would believe you. Absolutely. Well, actually, I know we're on a time constraint, so let's wrap it up here so we can do a short Patreon segment. But listen, we really appreciate it. Maybe we can get you back on here in the future. Maybe there's a new discovery around the bend. Uh, But we really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your book, Extraterrestrial. You can check out his book on Amazon. I have the link down below. Uh, It's Kindle and he's also on um, Audible, too. So check that out 100%. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we love everybody out there. Stay safe. And uh, if you're interested, we're about to do a Patreon segment. It should be up later tonight. So we love everybody. Stay safe. And we'll catch you next time. Peace.